Welcome to the Institute of Buddhist Studies podcast. The following is part three of Dennis Sarota's 2010 Rukoku lecture series entitled Shinran's Phenomenology of Religious Life. Professor Hirota spoke at the Institute in March of 2010 over the course of three days. Please be sure to download this complete series of lectures from our website at podcast.shin-ibs.edu or directly from the iTunes Music Store. Truth. Uh, I'd just like to review uh, very briefly uh, the uh, general thinking behind uh, this, this series of three lectures. Uh, as I mentioned last time, and there are three main points that uh, guide my thinking in taking up these topics of truth and uh, time and dwelling. And uh, the first is uh, that uh, Shinran tends to uh, be viewed through a distorting glass. Uh, and as I commented last week, I think this is true uh, both in Japan and in the West. Uh, most commonly, uh, this sort of distorting glass has to do with uh, the understanding, ordinary understanding of faith as a subjective attitude or kind of assent or acceptance of the teaching as uh, propositional assertions, as, as doctrine, essentially. Uh, I think there tends to be the, a kind of imposition of uh, this uh, kind of thinking, uh, this notion of faith, a kind of uh, ordinary common sense notion of faith onto Shinran's uh, thought. And this results, I think, in a general uh, misconstrual, a misunderstanding. Uh, last week, I looked briefly, uh, I commented briefly on uh, the letter of Eshinni. And um, since there was a comment uh, after the lecture, I thought I should uh, explain more fully uh, 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 regarding uh, what I said. Uh, at that time, uh, I looked briefly at... Um, the translation of James Dobbins also. Uh, and uh, I uh, suggested that uh, it seemed to me uh, that this, the kind of imposition of a notion of faith um, that I've spoken of is, is present in Dobbins' translation. Uh, but I also commented at that time uh, that uh, there uh, may be evidence uh, in the letter, in the text of the letter, uh, that uh, at the time uh, Shinran uh, entered Honen's following at uh, Yoshimizu, uh, that Eshinni was already a member uh, of Honen's following. Uh, of course, uh, nobody... Uh, is certain about the identity uh, of uh, Eshinni. Uh, uh, but there have been uh, various uh, traditional theories. Um, and one is that essentially uh, the marriage between Shindan and Eshinni uh, took place uh, through, uh, uh, through Honen, uh, the connection with Honen. Uh, concerning the timing, in other words, that Eshini was already a member of the following, uh, at the time uh, Shinran 
went to see Honen and uh, became his disciple. Um, th this has been pointed out rather recently by an historian of Kamakura uh, Buddhism. Uh, and uh, the the strongest sort of textual evidence of what, what he has pointed out has to do with uh, the two uh, different verbs being used um, to indicate uh, the past tense. Uh, and this is uh, very common in Japanese. In, in the letter, uh, there is uh, keri. Uh, this is, for example, in the, th the third line of, of the romanization, the main verb is inoru, uh, to, to pray, uh, and, and the, uh, it, it's in a causative, the se, with, which means, uh, which holds the sense here of an honorific, and then tamo, tamai, is also an honorific. Uh, auxiliary verb, uh, and then it's followed by a conjugation of uh, keri, uh, indicating the past tense. And this is generally understood by, I mean, there, there are um, uh, different uses, uh, but in, in a kind of narrative of this kind where uh, events of the past are being reflected upon and related, um, that this is uh, something uh, what, what is being related is not directly experienced uh, by the person who is speaking. Uh, and uh, we see uh, the, the same uh, verb for the past tense being used, uh, for example, in, in the sixth line also, sorai uh, kereba, this is also the, the keri. Uh, uh, and then further down also, uh, this also so these would be events that Eshin did not uh, directly experience did not, did not you know, see it and is, is relating as part of her uh, direct experience however um, there is uh, later uh, the use of another uh, uh, verbal form indicating past tense, and this is the key. And the key is generally used uh, in contrast with carry. The, the meaning is uh, quite similar uh, to, to reflect on something that has occurred in the past and, and to relate it. Uh, but the key is generally thought to uh, express something that one has direct knowledge of, in other words, that one has experience. Uh, and when it comes to to Horn and uh, the, the um, uh, relating uh, what, what was going on, uh, what Honen was uh, speaking, so on, uh, and the encounter, then we find the key. And this is um, towards, uh, towards the bottom uh, where she says, Tada hito suji ni oserare sodai shi. This shi is a, a part of a conjugation of the key. Um, the shika is also um, the key. Um, uh, and so we see a kind of uh, mixture. And, and uh, the argument is, of course, that one naturally sort of shifts back and forth between the keri and the key, or uses the uh, keri. Um, 
or the key, depending on whether one has had direct experience. Um, so um, the, the suggestion is, of course, that um, at the time that Shinran actually uh, in, in count, went, went to see Hon and had his encounter, um, that Eshin is able to relate this directly uh, because um, she, she was there. Um, or uh, she, she was part of Honen's following at the time. Um, in, in any case, I, I, um, I just wanted to point that, that out since um, it, it may have been unclear um, what, what I was su suggesting. <clears throat> this, uh, um, this, this has been pointed out, as, as I say, fairly recently by, by an historian. Uh, and I think uh, it, it has not been especially noted uh, in the previous scholarship on the text. The text itself, uh, Eshinis' letters, were only discovered inside the Honganji in um, the, the, the first part of the 20th century. So a very recent discovery inside uh, a storehouse and in, in they're sort of accidentally uh, recovered. Um, uh, and most of the scholarship uh, through the, the 20th century has been uh, by uh, sectarian, sectarian scholars who have, of course, focused chiefly uh, on the figure of Shinran, um, especially as related in this, this letter. Uh, my suggestion uh, last week also was uh, that um, it, it, this, this term, tada hisotsuji ni oserare, that the connotations in, in the translations, uh, the translation of James Dobbins tends to sort of emphasize a kind of sort of faith structure. I, I think I, I said something like a, a, a rhetoric of faith, uh, where Dobbins uh, emphasizes this, there is only one path. Um, and, and of course, um, the, the, the text does not support that kind of interpretation. I, I think, I, I um, imagine that he was looking at uh, this, this word, uh, but um, that is not the meaning of this term, um, as, as I touched on last time. So it may be an, an almost sort of unconscious imposition of a, uh, even a, a rather Western, although also present in um, Kamakura, Japan, of course, uh, of a kind of rhetoric of, of faith, a kind of uh, notion of, of faith um, uh, that is not necessarily directly manifest in the text. Uh, in any case, uh, that, that was the, the first sort of concern that, that I've had in, in these lectures. Uh, and the second uh, underlying uh, uh, theme uh, of the lectures is that the chief problem with the common notion of faith is not so much that it re represents a kind of Christian uh, conception, but that it presupposes a subject-object dichotomy uh, where the object is uh, the teaching, the doctrine, or the actual existence of a meta or the pure land. In other words, it tends to, to objectify, to reify, uh, to look at uh, both the self uh, and uh, these uh, uh, the concepts of the teaching as referring to sort of substantial uh, objects, uh, <clears throat> uh, especially the, a notion of the self as autonomous, as standing apart from the world, as freely uh, making decisions about uh, what is true and what is false uh, and, and how one should live and so on. 
<clears throat> so uh, this this is my sense of, of the chief uh, uh, problem in in a common sense notion of faith. And the third is that in order to sort of remedy uh, what uh, uh, seems to me to be uh, this kind of uh, distortion of Shinran's thought, uh, it's probably necessary uh, not simply uh, to argue, for example, uh, that Shinji, or to, to use the romanization Shinjin instead of for faith, uh, or to argue that there, there is some essential difference, uh, but to articulate a different kind of model for understanding Shinjin uh, in Shinran's thought. Uh, uh, and, and further, that uh, uh, in, in our own present cultural context, uh, that taking a, a somewhat comparative perspective on uh, Shinran's thought may be helpful uh, in developing uh, this a, a different model than than faith, um, and uh, my candidate, one candidate, uh, one possibility, it seems to be uh, the thought of of Heidegger. So looking at Chinran, looking at Heidegger together, not not necessarily a, a sort of comparative um, sort of, uh, uh, scholarship so much as seeing uh, what sorts of things emerge uh, in Chinran's thought. Um, from uh, a, a kind of having uh, Heidegger in mind, uh, what sorts of things uh, in Shinran uh, might be illuminated or uh, elucidated uh, through uh, looking at Shinran uh, in a kind of comparative perspective with uh, Heidegger. Uh, I think there are others also, um, but uh, I think Heidegger has been uh, the main um, sort of source and force for um, certain strains, certain important strains in recent Western thought. Uh, and I suggested, uh, again, that the topics of truth uh, and of temporality uh, or time, uh, which I, I would touch on today, that, that these may be taken as examples of topics that are uh, important uh, in Shinran's thought, but have uh, not been dealt with uh, very much, uh, either in, in the traditional scholarship or, or in, in more modern scholarship. Um, they, they have been sort of submerged topics, or uh, I would uh, argue uh, that uh, we, when we read Shinran, we assume we know uh, what truth means, uh, what sort of sense of time uh, he has, we, we tend to uh, uh, superimpose our own uh, notions of truth and time uh, on his thought. Uh, and, and this may, may sort of cover over uh, those topics uh, in his writings. And so I would like to go on from uh, where, I, where we ended uh, last week. Uh, we just, I think, uh, looked at uh, the letter uh, from Eshinni, which I've just referred to. Um, <clears throat> so I would like to uh, go on uh, with, with um, what, what follows. And uh, I, th I think uh, maybe it will be easiest uh, to uh, 
for, for, for all of us if I sort of read through, make comments here and there. And, and since you have the text, I, I think you uh, would be able to follow along. Uh, I, the the uh, sort of anecdote, the the account that Eshini records in in the letter uh, about uh, Shinran's comment uh, that that he will follow uh, master, his master Hornet, um, uh, whatever people say and so on. Uh, I think uh, uh, this is well known. We we also uh, uh, saw a version of it. Uh, in uh, the second uh, chapter of Tanisho uh, last week, uh, there is another version version in uh, the Shujisho. Uh, the Shujisho is a uh, record uh, composed by Shinran's great grandson Kakunyo, uh, and in it uh, Shinran is quoted: "For myself, I have no idea whether I am bound for the pure land or for hell." The late Master Honen said, "Just come wherever I may be." Uh, having received these words, I shall go to the place where the late master is gone, I even if it be hell. Um, so we, we find uh, these same words repeated. This this may have been uh, in, in Kakunyo's account taken. Uh, I think uh, it's known that he had access to the letters of, of uh, Eshin, um, or he may have gotten gotten it from from some other account but it but it in any case it seems as though uh, this particular uh, account is of uh, some importance to Shinran uh, and that he repeated it on various occasions uh, often I think uh, we tend to take it as a kind of religious hyperbole uh, we don't uh, I think often understand it or want to take it very literally. Uh, we we uh, are inclined to say that Chinran, uh, in fact, uh, knew or, or felt uh, very assured uh, in his faith, and and that uh, uh, he was uh, felt assured that he was bound for the pure land. Uh, but having repeated this so often, uh, I think um, perhaps. Uh, it, it may be important to uh, understand these words more literally also. So, to receive Ohonen's instruction to hear the primal vow, to receive the truth of the teaching, are not a matter of understanding confined within the horizons of ordinary existence, but may be seen, but may be expressed as going to the place where the late master has gone, as a shift in stance of one's conduct of life, uh, even as it emerges for the first time as actually samsaric. So my uh, argument here is essentially that that um, that the experience of truth for Shinran uh, is not a matter of, say, accepting Honen's words as, as a doctrinally uh, accurate or correct or, or true, uh, right, in that sense. Uh, but as a kind of experience expressed as uh, being transferred from one place to another to to um, to have a very fundamental shift in his mode of existence uh, and this this I think is un really underlies uh, his repetition of, of this expression 
Here we see a further aspect of Shinran's conception of truth. Shinran speaks of the importance of his encounter with Honen, who beckons him uh, from across the gap between the place where he stands uh, and ordinary existence, the place where Honen stands and ordinary existence. In precisely the same way, in the pa passage, and th this is Eshin's uh, letter and also Tanisho too, uh, in particular, in Tanisho, Shinran beckons his disciples from their reasoning of methods for achieving the Pure Land to his own stance in which hell is decidedly his abode. Uh, what is central here is the transformative force of contact with what is true. The true words encountered in the person of Honen do not so much call one from the things of the world as they call one uh, from the sameness of the world envisioned and embraced from the attitude of the ego's self. The otherness of other power manifests itself precisely as the limit or boundary of the framework in which a person measures and gauges the worth and endurance of his own extended endurance existence. For Shinran, only in an existential encounter with otherness through dialogical engagement can the delusional attachments of our everyday life be broken. A reasoned or determinately resolute adherence to the Pure Land teaching cannot bring one beyond the limits of an ego-centered stance. It is for this reason that Shinran speaks of other power, which traditionally signifies the salvific activity of Amida Buddha, also in terms of the negative. Other power means to be free of any form of ahankarai. Here again, I think, very direct and, and very literal. The transformative character of truth requires a decisive encounter with its otherness, most probably through a teacher as seen in the encounter of Shinran and Honen mentioned above. One striking passage uh, revealing Shinran's attitudes regarding the transformative significance of religious encounters seen in the quotation on two kinds of Shinjin from a chapter on Shinjin. Now, there are two kinds of Shinjin. One arises from hearing and the other from thought. This person's Shinjin has arisen from hearing but not from thought. And therefore, it is called imperfect realization of Shinjin. Uh, again, there are two kinds of Shinjin. One is to believe that there is enlightenment. The other, to believe that there are people who have attained it. This person's Shinjin is belief only that enlightenment exists and not that there are people who have attained it. Therefore, it's called imperfect realization of Shinjin. Uh, here we see that doctrinal understanding about the possibility of attainment is inadequate and that knowledge that there are people who have attained enlightenment is necessary. Such knowledge is surely based on actual encounter with the person who gives evidence of having been touched by the working of wisdom, compassion, such as in Shinran's encounter with Honen. And, is, and here again, I, I want to, what I'm trying to emphasize is, is the shift, a, a kind of, what, existential shift, I guess, rather than a, a, an intellectual or um, uh, added, merely attitudinal uh, change or acceptance of doctrine. Uh, an additional characteristic of Shinran's notion of truth is its dynamic multivalence. It becomes manifest in the process of understanding because it is a mode of apprehension and not an 
objectified formulation. The quality of truth lies not in an intellectual grasp alone, uh, but in an awareness that includes a recognition of one's own finitude and its final partiality and untruth. Um, and this, this uh, I, I think, is, uh, is uh, at the heart of a comparative treatment, and, and I'll touch on this uh, below also. Uh, in other words, uh, it, it is not that uh, one's own finitude uh, or uh, karmic evil or uh, a blind passion or whatever uh, is accepted uh, as a doctrinal statement. Um, uh, and that um, Shinran, further, of course, that, that Shinran's awakening and also his manifestation uh, of, of the teaching, of, of the truth of Amida's vow, uh, occurs uh, with his, his own condition of finitude and partiality and untruth. Uh, this, this kind of paradoxical situation. Uh, and th this is, I think, w what lies at the heart of a contrast with an, um, a common sense notion of, of faith that depends on a subject which uh, essentially uh, has uh, the ability, the capability uh, to accept the teaching. In other words, uh, that capability in itself is what Shinran uh, rejects as self-power. Uh, here I will note only uh, that truth for Shinran uh, is not abstract and transcendent, but always truth as enacted and encountered as other power that acts to reveal the situatedness of human understanding. In the sense, truth for Shinran is neither objectified nor emanational. Uh, as the self-awareness of karmic beings, it does not stand apart uh, from ignorance and falsity. Uh, from the above, we see that in Shinran's thought, uh, truth is above all enacted, a transformative in event, illogical in character, as appropriate uh, to the linguisticality of our existence, and pluralist and non-reifying in its force. And I would like to go on now to uh, a, a sort of comparison with Heidegger, um, the comparison that I uh, spoke of uh, last week. Uh, Heidegger contributed importantly to a shift in much of 20th century philosophical concern from traditional issues of ontology and epistemology uh, to a notion of philosophy as hermeneutics in which human awareness is viewed as inherently interpretive. This shift turns on the displacement of the dualism of subject and object as a central paradigm of knowledge, and because of this moves Western thought toward a Buddhist orientation. The chief element of Shin Buddhist thinking that opens it to a comparison with Heidegger's hermeneutical reflection is that unlike Buddhist paths that center on meditative or contemplative praxis by which absorption in delusional thought and speech is sundered, the Shin Buddhist path is to be carried on in non-monastic environments in the course of everyday life uh, without the eradication of egocentric perception and emotion. The distinctiveness of Shin, the Shin Buddhist path is reflected in the practitioner's relationship, relation to language. 
uh, let's see, maybe we can skip this. Uh, I'll, I'll skip to the next paragraph. Uh, the acknowledgement of human finitude and situatedness in Shinran and in Heidegger, coupled with what may be called an existential concern to articulate the nature and possibilities of awareness from within the limitations of its actual compass, appear to lead to certain structural similarities of thought. And and it's here, I, that is, um, that they, they are trying to... Uh, describe uh, human awareness uh, from from within uh, what they recognize as as uh, the limitations of awareness uh, below I will first outline a number of motifs in the thinking regarding engagement with truth in Chinran and in Heidegger uh, that might be seen as lying along a trajectory of similar concerns and configurations of issues by drawing parallels between Chinran and concepts in Heidegger's essay on the essence of truth, I will seek to sketch a shared conceptual structure by which these thinkers grasp the meaning of truth and its implications for the understanding of human life. Uh, and as, as I mentioned before, I, I will focus here only on this rather short essay, a short but a pivotal uh, uh, essay of Heidegger's. Uh, to begin with an understanding of the nature of truth, Chinran and Heidegger in, on the essence of truth uh, may be said to be in agreement on versions of the following outline. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, the, the, I give the outline, uh, they're numbered, and I will take up each of the numbered uh, sections uh, later. But uh, first, uh, the general summary or outline, uh, which I think... Uh, both Chinran and Heidegger might concur on. Uh, truth is commonly considered to be a matter of accord between the represent, uh, representation in verbal statements and what is actually the case. But it is not chiefly a property of propositions or beliefs. There are two basic reasons the common sense notion must be regarded as inadequate. First, it rests on assumptions of an autonomous subject capable of perception and assessment from a transcendent standpoint. But human awareness must be seen as always and inescapably conditioned and contextualized. Uh, in other words, we never stand apart from what we are always in, in the world and, and seeing uh, things in, in, in a world, in a context. We're never... Uh, the sort of self that uh, stands uh, independent and uh, free of uh, all context whatsoever, a self that can uh, look on, on the world uh, in a completely objective manner. Hence, there is no absolute standard available to the subject by which it may render impartial judgments. Indeed, our usual grasp of the world does not arise from a transcendent and objective perspective, uh, but is always colored and shaped in various ways depending on our interactions with particular, within particular circumstances. The second reason has to do uh, with that which appears in the world around us and becomes accessible to us in our world of speech. Both Shinran and Heidegger pursue the inquiry into truth 
into questions of how reality appears as intelligible and what enables humans to apprehend it. Both thinkers developed structures involving a complex reciprocal dynamic of simultaneous engagement and withdrawal or disclosure and hiddenness on the sides of both the knower and the real or things in the world. Uh, the major consequence of these structures is that truth or the apprehension of reality must be seen as essentially interfused with untruth. Untruth is uh, Heidegger's term, um, but I, I think they're, they're, we can see it, a course, corresponding term in, in Shinran. Um, perhaps it's something like a, a, a blind passion and so on. The apprehension of such truth, untruth, is inev inevitably transformative. It, it involves a fundamental shift in mode of thinking and perception and hence of the conduct of life and may be called salvific. So all of this, I think, uh, may be seen as sort of held in common or there, there are grounds for agreement on all of this uh, between uh, Shinran and Heidegger. I will discuss the elements of this sketch briefly, drawing on both Shinran and Heidegger. Although the immediate referent of truth must be said to be far more restricted in scope in Shinran than in Heidegger, the configurations of their problematic and the structures of their conceptions of apprehension are nevertheless analogous in significant ways. And then I, I give a list of the seven, sort of, um, seven statements, which I will take up one by one. The first one, truth is not primarily a property of propositions. And, I, and of course, this is um, a key in a, a kind of overcoming of a notion of faith as doctrinal propositions, uh, which is um, the reason that, that truth is an important issue, part of the reason, an important issue in, in understanding Shinran, I think. Uh, neither Shinran nor Heidegger completely deny the common sense notion of truth that representational correctness or accordance between assertion and fact. Shinran regards the teaching of the vow of Amida Buddha by Shakyamuni in the largest sutra as the basis for the unfolding of the Pure Land path in history and speaks of it as Shakyamuni's true words or, and true teaching and as the right exposition for which Shakyamuni Buddha appeared in the world. Further, he adduces passages recording the immediate circumstances of Shakyamuni's exposition of the sutra itself as providing clear testimony of the truth and the epical significance of the Buddhist message. And we looked at some of these last, last week. Nevertheless, as we have seen, truth for Shinran cannot be regarded fundamentally as proposition or doctrinal proclamation to be demonstrated through reasoning or accepted on authority and therefore acquiesced to intellectually. This is because such engagement with the teaching is in fact an appropriation rooted in and thus reinforcing attachments to a falsely conceived self, that is, um, the, the sort of absolutized self the self that can stand above and apart from the world and make judgments and so on. Uh, in his writings as a whole, 
Shinran is fundamentally concerned to illuminate what he labels self-power within engagement with the path of other power, the clinging that underlies ordinary assumptions regarding uh, what is tr true and good and the conviction that such determinations are clear, immediately accessible and easily incorporated uh, into a calculus of personal virtue. He quotes Shakyamuni's words in the larger sutra. Suppose there are sentient beings who, with minds full of doubt, aspire to be born in that land through the practice of various meritorious acts, unable to realize Buddha wisdom, inconceivable wisdom. They doubt these wisdoms and do not entrust themselves. And yet, believing in the recompense of evil and good, they aspire to be born in that land through cultivating the root of good. This, of course, a, a description of, of self-power, uh, this attachment to a belief in uh, good and evil, um, and, or underlying that, the affirmation of one's own ability uh, to make correct judgments about what is good and what is evil. According uh, to Shinran, the appropriation of Pure Land teachings within ordinary modes of thinking uh, <clears throat> leads not to genuine appreh apprehension, uh, but to believe in the recompense of evil and good based on an accessible moral order. Uh, such belief is in fact doubt or egocentric calculation, hakarai. The encounter with what is true and real occurs only as a transformation of such ordinary thinking perception. Uh, in On the Essence of Truth, Heidegger adopts as his starting point the conception of truth as correspondence, but quickly moves on to a, an analysis of its presuppositions. He points out that the notion of truth as accordance uh, in the modern West goes back most recently to medieval origins and is ultimately grounded in the theological idea of correspondence uh, between the created and ideas preconceived uh, in the mind of God, which are also bestowed on humans. I think this is an interesting uh, observation on Heidegger's part. Um, in other words, uh, although now we basically assume that truth uh, refers to the uh, correspondence between what we're thinking of or what we may say or what someone says or what is written and uh, what is the case in, in the world. We, we assume that there can be this kind of correspondence. Um, but Heidegger first point, points out that uh, traditionally in the West that, that this cannot be a, a mere sort of leap between the two. Uh, and uh, it was based on a kind of triangulation uh, that uh, uh, essentially human beings uh, were able to uh, recognize uh, and know things in the world because God created the world, God created the things uh, according to God's own idea, and God imparted those ideas uh, to human beings. Uh, so through, through uh, God's activity, uh, there, there can be this correspondence between uh, the knowledge of human beings and what is actually the case in the world. <clears throat> in 
other words, it is a mutual conformity uh, to the divine intellect of both matters in creation and human knowledge that grounds the possibility of truth. Uh, in the modern West, the order of creation has since given way to a generalized world order or worldly reason, uh, which is tacitly invoked to explain how correctness may occur and which is presumed to be immediately intelligible and without need of proof. Um, so in the West, uh, uh, at some point, God drops out uh, and is replaced by, um, by reason. Um, but of course, uh, again, traditionally in the West, reason was considered an attribute of God that God had imparted to human beings only. Uh, and uh, of course, with, with that reason, um, the, the uh, apprehension of, of things in the world uh, became uh, possible. Uh, <clears throat> early on uh, in, in the West, uh, the, there was also the movement of uh, using reason to study uh, the laws of nature, for example, to, to pursue science uh, in order to know the mind of God. Uh, so there, there are various configurations of this kind of tri triangulation. Uh, but for, for uh, the modern uh, West, essentially reason has replaced uh, the mind of God and, and uh, supposedly reason underlies uh, this uh, human capacity for uh, correct knowledge and truth. Uh, uh, according to Heidegger, this presupposition of an obvious order in the world, in fact, underpins an absolutization of the perceiving self that masks and obstructs uh, the actual dynamic of apprehension. Thus, Heidegger's thinking, just as Shinran's, leads to a rejection of the adequacy of a common-sense notion of truth that assumes both the framework of an order or logic uh, accepted as self-evident uh, together with the autonomy of the ego's subject functioning in accordance with it. Such presuppositions must be overturned for the genuine nature of truth to be apprehended. Uh, so uh, it, it's in this way that Heidegger uh, tries to, to overcome, to go beyond uh, the common sense notion of, of truth as uh, essentially a sort of correspondence between um, what, the, the activity of human mind and, and what is the case uh, in, in the world. Uh, and he, he asks what, what makes the, this sort of correspondence possible and, and he would see as, as the essence of truth uh, what, what it is that, that makes it possible. Uh, so in the second one, uh, the second uh, general a point of agreement between Shinran and Heidegger. Human existence is conditioned and finite. Heidegger's method in On the Essence of Truth is to press his inquiry into the nature, uh, into the nature of truth by probing how it is possible uh, for there to be accordance between the statement and the matter between words and particulars uh, which must be recognized as completely disparate in nature. In other words, what we say, our words are in no way um, similar to the thing. For example, uh, there is a glass of water on, on the table. Um, 
my saying that and the glass of water on the table are, are completely different, completely disparate in nature. So what, what do we mean by correspondence? And this, uh, Heidegger pursues his discussion in this way. This leads to the question of the relationship between a presentative statement, the statement I make, and the presented thing and the meaning of being present itself. Heidegger asks what it is that enables things or facts to be present in the first place, uh, to which uh, statements uh, correspond. Uh, refusing the familiar notion of a subject-object relationship in which objects simply appear distinctly and directly uh, before a transcendent subject, Heidegger argues that beings are disclosed as the things they are through practical human involvement uh, within a pre-existing matrix of meaningful relationships. In other words, uh, it's not that we, we sort of stand apart from things and observe, uh, we come into the room and we, we see different shapes and uh, we sort of digest the, the sensory data and um, analyze it and, and say, yes, that's a chair or that's a table, uh, that's where I should sit and so on. We, we rather than that, immediately know as we come in, we, we, we don't see uh, shapes and colors. We see chairs and desks and um, other people and so on. Uh, so it's in, uh, there, there's, a, there's a more immediate and uh, sort of uh, interactive uh, source of, of our uh, actual knowledge. Uh, and, and Heidegger is, is going after uh, that, that kind of sort of know-how. Know uh, as a, as a deeper um, basis of, of truth. For Heidegger, a person becomes aware of things only within a contextualizing world. And so th this is, on the one hand, we, we are in the world, uh, and um, this, this also uh, defines, uh, in a way, our, our finitude, our limitations also. Um, but uh, being in, in this world, being, say, English speakers and being, uh, having grown up in, in this cultural context, in this historical period and so on, uh, we come uh, with, with a lot of context which uh, shapes and places the world before us and, and gives, us, gives us the things that we see. Uh, so um, the, the finitude uh, is, is also uh, this contextualizing world, a prior understanding embodied in language and directed behaviors. It is against the background of such involvements and that things emerge as intelligible and significant in the world around us. Heidegger therefore speaks of a person's comportment towards things, activity that allows a thing to appear, uh, and of a world uh, which is not a totality of objects, uh, but which serves as a horizon within which things appear in a disclosive context. A statement then uh, may be seen uh, as an aspect of such comportment. We come in, we sit down, uh, uh, we, we don't sort of uh, analyze chairs and so on. We, we, we use them, uh, we know how to deal with them. Um, it, there, there's a more immediate level uh, of our uh, awareness of the world, uh, in other words. Uh, a statement that may be seen as an aspect of such comportment. Uh, in comportment, a, sta a person stands in an open region. Uh, Heidegger uses terms like clearing or openness, uh, which is a domain of relatedness uh, in which beings become present as objects 
uh, opposite the subject and become capable of being said. Uh, and what, what Heidegger is trying to do here uh, is to, to, to define a model uh, in which we, 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 we are aware of the things of the world, uh, but um, a model that's very different from a common sense notion of uh, the, the, the subject, the self, Right, as standing apart from the world. In other words, we know because we are, we are in the world, we're active in it, we, we are here together with the things that appear before us. And um, they, appear, they appear with meaning, uh, meaning for us, uh, meaning because uh, we, we are carrying on our lives uh, in, within, within this world. Uh, here, according to Heidegger, being and presentative statement be present together. Uh, in other words, there's no, there's no gap uh, between the subject and object. Um, it, the, the world with us in it uh, arises as, as a whole. Uh, and it is this that forms the, the basis uh, for propositional correctness. Uh, this makes possible our, our ordinary sense of, of correspondence of of words and things and so on. Thus, to displace the common sense model of knowledge based on a substantialist subject-object dualism, Heidegger delineates an experiential structure of knowing in which, from the beginning, human being and contextual world are mutually dependent. Human beings find themselves always already within a world, and things are found to be meaningful only through human interests and involvement. World, in Heidegger's sense, is a dynamic that plays a twofold role. On the one hand, as the conditioned and conditioning horizon of intelligibility uh, in which a person carries on his or her existence, it is the situating of a person socially, culturally, and historically. On the other hand, it is the presencing uh, by which beings appear around us as meaningful in the conduct of our lives. World then uh, is a functioning that must be presupposed when considering subject and object, a particular lens that brings into varying degrees of focus and salience specific aspects and features of our surroundings, showing things such as they may be present to us. So, so there, there, there's two sides. I mean, the, our world is, is, is one small um, possibility of a world, but uh, it's, it, it, we, we're conditioned it in various ways, culturally, socially, historically, to, to be in, in the world, to act in the world, exist in the world in, in a particular way. At the same time, world allows things to, to appear uh, to us. So it's enabling, it's also limiting there are these two sides. Uh, the notion that the always prior situatedness of human beings provides uh, <clears throat> through concrete practices of daily life uh, the contours of their grasp of the world resonates uh, with Shinran's emphasis on the karmic conditionedness of a person's existence, stretching back into an unknowable past and informing one's present circumstances, and his marked sense of social, cultural, and historical place and of the linguisticality of human existence. These views suggest that, like Heidegger, Shinran regards human existence as fundamentally conditioned in ways that escape ordinary self-awareness and belie the common assumptions of the self as an autonomous agent capable of detached perceptions and absolute judgments. Further, by probing the insight into a conditioned directedness or interestedness similar to 
Heidegger's concept of comportment, Shinran develops the central pure land term, Shinjin, traditionally regarded as a person's attitude of faith, as a mode of engagement in which a person's attachments within the realm of his egocentric perceptions is broken. He states that the vow cannot be genuinely grasped simply as propositional truth, but must be encountered. The name of Amida must be heard, and this takes place in one thought moment and can only be awaited, not in any way brought about by a person's calculative thinking or designs. It is given by and as the working of Amida's wisdom, compassion. Such expressions, a number of which have their analog uh, in Heidegger, bespeak a mode of engagement uh, with the teaching in which truth is not primarily a property of doctrinal propositions, but an occurrence or event. Um, and the, the third uh, sort of area of uh, agreement, uh, ordinary human existence is characterized by ignorance and attachment. Uh, while the conditioned contextualized nature of human awareness indicates its finitude for both Shinran and Heidegger. From Shinran's Buddhist perspective, that such human awareness remains intractably discriminative and reifying in its functioning, standing on the dualism of self and other, and drawing distinctions among beings from the perspective of the self, points to a fundamental ignorance and source of afflicting passions. And so this this the human finitude uh, in in the negative uh, light. Thus, uh, for Shinran, human existence is karmically conditioned. As karmically conditioned, is not merely finite, but may be characterized as evil in the sense of comprising acts that can lead only to further painful existence and not toward realization of the liberative, non-discriminative wisdom of Buddhas. Heidegger does not include a dimension like Shinran's conception of karmic evil in delineating human finitude, but in addition to his concept of comportment as a directed involvement in which beings appear as objects of concern to one, he states that comportment is always attuned by a disposedness or pervasive mood or tone that enables and characterizes the way a person apprehends the things of the world. Heidegger does not give a concrete example in On the Essence of Truth, uh, but this attunement or disposedness, uh, disposition maybe, uh, appears to be a holistic quality that colors one's entire perception of things, uh, perhaps uh, like feeling a feeling of elation or melancholy. Uh, it prevails not solely as an inner attitude imposed on things, nor as an objective fact, but as arising from the mutual interaction uh, between a person and the things of the world. Perhaps it may be said that, although extreme in example, when Shinran states our desires are countless and anger, wrath, jealousy, and envy are overwhelming, arising without pause, to the very last moment of life they do not cease or disappear or exhaust themselves. At bottom, he's speaking of a similar inherent, though perhaps constantly changing, quality of existential involvement. Uh, so in, in both cases, a kind of a lens uh, in which the, the world appears. <coughs> Thank you.
the, the, the center's phone. Um, uh, for uh, both uh, Heidegger and Shinran, human existence is invariably attuned in uh, some way in the world, uh, and the things of the world are, dis are disclosed accordingly. Uh, in his writings, uh, Heidegger does not, like Shinran, employ a religious conception of evil, uh, and tends instead to speak of the human potential for awareness of mortality, of death. Uh, of of death uh, of the 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 dread of death being a kind of uh, of disposition or mood or uh, that, that may uh, uh, color one's entire world and so on. Uh, nevertheless, uh, in on the essence of truth, uh, he focuses on the insistence, errancy, and the forgetful uh, forgottenness of the mystery that characterizes ordinary human existence. In other words, uh, Heidegger also has a conception of uh, ignorance in, in the sense that uh, human beings uh, become uh, involved in uh, their common sense world. Uh, common sense world, uh, and uh, therefore are, are forgetful of, of the way things uh, genuinely are, or, or the way human existence uh, generally uh, uh, genuinely is. Uh, before we can turn to these concepts, however, we must consider the structure of interaction uh, that characterizes the appearance of things. Uh, so the, the fourth statement. Uh, truth involves a reciprocal dynamic of engagement and withdrawal. For both Shinran and Heidegger, uh, the question of the nature of truth is directly linked to the problem of the finitude of human existence and the implications it holds for human apprehension. Uh, for both thinkers, the grasp of, of the everyday world around us is informed by constraints and biases stemming from inherent features of human existence. Though ordinarily, we have no awareness of the partiality of our understanding. The emergence of truth, therefore, involves a multifaceted dynamic in which our usual perception of our world is fractured and a new awareness is somehow born apart from the domain of our habitual, of the habitual functioning of consciousness. In delineating the elements of this dynamic, Shinran and Heidegger show similarities in first uh, the bidirectional movement underlying apprehension or presencing, and second, the interaction of these movements as they occur on the parts of subject and object. Uh, in On the Essence of Truth, Heidegger delineates this complex of intertwined structural motifs involved in the interaction uh, between human being and thing. According to Heidegger, comportment as directed behavior uh, towards things arising against the contextualizing backdrop allows for beings to appear intelligibly and meaningfully. Again, we walk into the room, we see chairs and desks and so on, uh, meaningful things uh, arising in, in, in the context of our, of our lives. Uh, this, he states, is the more originary ground of the correspondence of statement and fact. Here, comportment is characterized as standing uh, in an openness to beings and a domain of relatedness in which things are allowed to stand opposed as object and become capable of being said. 
We may view the situation from two interrelated stances, that of the subject and that of the object. In other words, the, the dichotomy of subject-object persists because there is no overcoming our, our, uh, our uh, uh, mode of perception. Uh, <clears throat> each side, however, is further characterized by an intricate uh, reciprocal dynamic. Regarding the subject, uh, as we have seen, the interested engagement with the things of the world that Heidegger terms comportment is necessary for things to emerge meaningfully. Uh, at the same time, uh, in section four of, on the essence of truth, titled the, es the Essence of Freedom, Heidegger discusses truth as freedom, where freedom is understood not as a property possessed by the human agent exerting self-directed will, but rather as freedom for what is opened up in an open region, freedom that lets beings be the beings they are. It is precisely in this freedom uh, that human beings exist or stand out from themselves. Uh, this is sort of a Heidegger expression, but it, meaning essentially that, that we, we're not somehow encapsulated in our bodies sort of looking at and acting on things. Uh, but we, we perceive things, uh, we are aware of things in our interactions, we're, we're out of ourselves in the world uh, among things uh, that, that in which we are we're active. Uh, <clears throat> it's precisely this freedom, uh, in this freedom that human beings exist to stand out from themselves so that their engagement of things is not mere conceptual imposition or instinctual pattern reaction, but kind of exposure to things that allows them to be uh, disclosed and reveal themselves. Uh, in the open region characterized by freedom as letting beings be, the interaction of knower and known unfolds, and truth occurs at an, as an engagement in the disclosure of beings. Heidegger further states that such engagement withdraws in the face of beings uh, in order that they uh, might reveal themselves. Uh, in rejecting notions of an autonomous subject, assertively grasping objects in its surroundings, Heidegger emphasizes the freedom uh, that possesses the human being as a receptive, resolutely open bearing towards beings and that precisely does not close up in itself uh, within the constraints of its own willful and compulsive self-imposition. Uh, uh, let's see, maybe I can skip this. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'll uh, skip a bit, I think. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I'll skip a paragraph uh, and go to the next paragraph. Uh, Heidegger gives, gives uh, some explanation of, of essence, three definitions of, of essence in, in his usage. But, it, but he, yeah, basically it's a kind of enabling of our, of our grasp of the world. Um, <clears throat> um, and and that, that is what he is trying to get at in his essay. 
uh, and I and I would see here to bring it into comparison with Chinran's thought. Uh, Heidegger's definitions may be taken to indicate three dimensions of the beings we perceive of, around us. The concrete things and events in our surroundings, things that are perceived, what the, the essence of things as, what we usually think of as essence, as what makes them what they are. Uh, the unapprehended world of practices and language that enables things to appear to us intelligibly. And, and this, um, uh, again, Heidegger's idea that, that we don't simply observe and analyze things uh, and grasp them intellectually, uh, but that, uh, that uh, we exist together with things in, in a world, in a contextualizing world. And it's the world that enables things to appear um, to us. Uh, as recognizable and, and meaningful. Uh, the, the unapprehended world of practices and language uh, that enables us to, uh, enables things to appear to us in, intelligibly. Unapprehended in that, the, the world in, in Heidegger's uh, meaning uh, is, is not something that we can uh, see or perceive or conceptualize, well, uh, grasp uh, con conceptually, I, I suppose. It, it's uh, uh, it, it refers to, to this uh, kind of dynamic. And third, the mystery that remains inconceivable uh, even while it emerges into presence as the unconcealed or truth. Uh, and uh, part of the, uh, uh, the uh, Heidegger is working here as a, a level with the things appear um, but other thing, things appear because a part of the background recedes and is not perceived. Um, and, and he's, he's uh, trying to get at this, this withdrawal uh, that allows things to appear. And that, that would be uh, the, the more properly uh, the, the ground of what we might think of uh, as truth. There is an emergence uh, to presence as the things of our everyday landscape, and at the same time, there remains in things that with which withdraws into mystery. Uh, in this way, uh, we find a mirroring or reciprocity between the functioning of subject and object. In other words, uh, the subject uh, 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 stands out from itself, becomes open uh, and receptive to things, things appear, uh, but that appearance itself involves um, some level of, of withdrawal uh, and uh, becoming imperceptible, ungraspable. Uh, <clears throat> just as the subject exercises freedom to exist or stand out from a familiar grasp of the world, uh, only thus uh, to become exposed in res uh, receptivity to the appearing of a thing. So things become apparent while at the same time retaining their hiddenness. So uh, the reciprocity that I'm speaking of has to do with this back and forth movement where there, there's a going out um, and, and also a, a kind of hiddenness on both the, the part of the subject and object. And I think this this interaction or this this reciprocity um, 
is uh, partly Heidegger's way of overcoming uh, the, the usual model of uh, the subject observing, grasping objects. Uh, for Shinran, the fundamental elements of the event of truth are human being and Buddha, not broadly as in Heidegger, the things of the world around us. Nevertheless, we find developed in Shinran an analogous re reciprocity of dynamics to displace the substantialist notion of the self grasping objects without eliminating uh, the subject-object dualism altogether. In other words, as long as there's perception, uh, there is the subject-object dualism. But the problem is uh, how far these are uh, substantialized, uh, viewed as, as uh, substantial. Thus, for Shinran, truth as a genuine encounter of a human being with Buddha is a complex interaction that requires simultaneously opposing movement. On the part of the object, there is form, uh, Amida Buddha, vow, name, emerging into human awareness from formless suchness or reality, and at the same time functioning to bring beings to awareness of formless reality. Um, this uh, a reference, of course, to um, the Jinen Honisho, the, the letter on, on Jinen, uh, where uh, Shinran uh, speaks of, of, of uh, the appearance of form of Jinen as, as leading us to uh, a, a realization of formless reality, which, of course, uh, we have no, no conception, no, no grasp of. Um, on the part of the subject, there is the falling away of calculative thinking, uh, which is the imposition of our ordinary mode of thinking on, in daily life on the working of Amida's vow. According to Shinran, uh, human beings become free of Hakarai, uh, and this being free of Hakarai is itself the functioning of the vow um, and the realization of Shinjin. And um, I think in, in this expression, we, we have the same kind of reciprocity uh, Shinran perhaps trying to get at, at something uh, similar uh, in movement as what um, Heidegger uh, takes up in his uh, philosophical manner. Uh, and, and next, uh, truth is fused uh, with uh, untruth. The central theme in the second half of on, uh, the essence of truth uh, <clears throat> is the third of Heidegger's three definitions of essence, that which grounds truth as unconcealment. According to Heidegger, this is precisely the opposite of truth, that is, untruth or the concealment of beings. Uh, I'll skip the, the quotation. It may be said that world as the enabling horizon of intelligibility uh, also stands as the inconceivable limit of knowledge. Uh, in other words, our world is also uh, the limit uh, of our knowledge and and. Uh, uh, but the, the world also has a dimension of hiddenness. Um, uh, it's a, the inconceivable limit of knowledge, uh, but the recognition of the aspects of reality illumined uh, within the domain of relatedness in which we conduct our lives is made possible by the concealment of those aspects that might obscure the firm outlines that we meet uh, that meet our grasp and are meaningful to us. For Heidegger, then, concealment uh, does not indicate merely the limits of a human capacity to know, uh, but that uh, which, in fact, is prior to knowledge. In other words, it's not simply that, well, we, uh, we can only hear or see uh, a, a narrow range of, of uh, frequencies or ranges uh, and so on. Uh, 
but there, there is a different, different sense of limitation. Uh, without concealment that allows for the shape of human conception and further the concealment of this concealment. In other words, when we see a thing, uh, we do not see the, the background from, from which it emerges and the background that withdraws in order that we see um, what, what appears. The concealment of this concealment, we don't pay attention uh, to the concealment itself. Uh, the appearance of beings within the field of intelligibility is impossible. Uh, this enabling ground is termed the mystery, uh, not a particular mystery regarding this or that, but rather the one mystery that is, uh, that in general mystery, the concealing of what is concealed, which holds sway throughout uh, the design of uh, human beings. And what is central here for our concerns is a structure of simultaneous opposition and non-duality that Heidegger delineates. He states it both in relation to truth, so that untruth uh, is most proper to the essence of truth and in relation to essence. Um, and I'll skip uh, the quotation. Uh, in deconstructing the common sense subject-object dichotomy founded on presuppositions of an autonomous transcendent self, both Heidegger and Chinran assert similar structures of simultaneous opposition and non-duality. The non-duality allows uh, for the field in which human awareness of reality arises without the absolute prior dichotomy of subject and object. Uh, in Heidegger, this field is the openness unfolded as a reciprocal emergence and withdrawal, both of human comportment and that stands open to beings and of the disclosure of beings out of the concealment of beings as a whole. Uh, in Shinran, the non-duality may be seen in particular in the assertion of the practicers entrusting to the vow, um, in the assertion that the, the practicers entrusting to the vow is itself the mind of Amida Buddha. And also in Shinran's depiction of both uh, Amida Buddha's vow, or name, and so on, uh, and the practicers' uh, mind of entrusting as arising from formless Buddha or reality. In both thinkers, uh, the aspect of opposition or radical otherness uh, in the structure of awareness allows for its functioning uh, to apprehend truth, uh, even in the light of the ineluctable conditionedness and finitude of human conceptualization. Uh, let's see. Uh, they, perhaps uh, we should take a break here. I haven't quite uh, finished this section, um, and perhaps I could just go through and uh, summarize it briefly after the break. Um, in any case, uh, I think uh, what, I'm, what I'm seeking to, to draw out of Heidegger, of course, is a great deal um, of philosophical subtlety that uh, is far beyond uh, my uh, familiarity or training. Um, but I think uh, there, there, there are certain structural similarities, analogs, um, and it, it, uh, it would uh, allow for um, a delineation in, in Chinran uh, of a, a different kind of uh, model for what we usually think of as faith. Uh, and I think it, it is there. I think it is present uh, in Shinran. Uh, and, and I think also that it, it has uh, not been 
uh, much treated uh, in the tradition, in traditional scholarship, um, uh, partly because our general assumptions of everyday life are so strong. Uh, but uh, if, if there are comments or questions.